listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Wayne Bean spent his adult life working towards one goal, managing a cattle station. So, when he resigned from his job as the manager at Flora Valley Station after 14 years, for the first time in his life, he didn't have a plan. This episode is the third and final part of our chat with Wayne, where he discusses how he navigated his first major career change at the age of 42. And, as many listeners have been patiently waiting for, we also discuss Wayne's journey to becoming an accomplished horseman and camp draft competitor, from a time when he almost walked away from the sport, to how he approaches the mental side of competition, and his future goals, there is something we can all learn from Wayne in this episode. After spending two decades working in the industry that you wanted to be in for so long, did you know what you wanted to do when you left the, the station? Like, did you already have a job to go to or was it coming to town for a bit and then figure out what to do? Yeah, good question. No, I, I, I had no goals. Uh, nothing in sight was basically get to town. Uh, the two boys that had apprenticeships, um, work and they, they were working. You know, from our place in, in Catherine, we, we were living in a cabin in the shed then. We hadn't put the house up. And it was basically, yeah, just to get to town, get comfortable, get this house built in a few yards and, you know, so I could work a few horses and uh, just basically get comfortable. And that that went by, went on for probably three, four, five, six months, I guess. And then I started thinking about, hell, what am I going to do, you know, I'm going to ride a few horses, break in or something. Then one day, two guys showed up from uh, Territory Brill, um, which has since been bought out by Nutrien. So they were into livestock sales and property sales and also merchandise in Catherine Town and Darwin. And, yeah, had a cup of coffee with them and uh, next minute I'm, I'm working for them as a livestock agent. So, so you just, you've come and had the tap on the shoulder. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, you know, I don't. I've never seen myself as an agent, but I certainly knew all the markets and the specifications and that side of it. Once again, you know, there's a whole new people side of it, new admin side of it that I hadn't seen. Before they came to visit you, did you ever, I guess, not worry, but, you know, it's a big change to go from being employed, you know, nonstop since you were a young lad to then being in your early 40s and not being employed by choice, you know but not have anything on the horizon? Like, was that? did you have some anxiety about that? Well, it was unusual for me because I was, I was always, you know, very programmed. I'd, I'd never moved from anywhere unless it was a step up and a step forward. Yeah. But, you know, I had this goal that where I've always said to my wife and, you know, I didn't want to leave her out there in a remote area for the rest of her life to die. Not that there was anything wrong with the place, but I think she appreciated moving to town. You know, you've got hairdressers and shops all pretty close and go out to dinner, all those sorts of things. So I'm sure she enjoyed that side of it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And it didn't frighten me. I just had things I wanted to do there anyway. You know, on her own block, it's a virgin bit of land. So you want to get comfortable with things. So it took quite a few months to get comfortable. And yeah, I guess those two guys come around at the right time because I was looking to do something, you know. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was looking to do something. Yeah, I guess you must have had a fair bit of faith. I'm trying to think of a better word, but you know, or confidence that things were just going to turn out. That, you know, I guess you'd worked that hard for that many years. You've developed yourself as a, as a handy, skilled person that you're going to land on your feet. Well, there's a lot of things, um, you know, I could, I can do. I had a, a lot of skills. So yeah, I wasn't really bothered, but, uh, yeah, the agency job come up so I thought I'll give that a whack and at the very least I'll get to see a lot of properties that I've always yearned to go and see 
you know, you hear about places and you wonder, well, what are those countries like or those people like? So I've got to do all that. So for anybody listening who's not familiar with the cattle industry, what does a livestock agent do and what did that job involve for you? Well, it's a lot of driving, a lot of phone, talking to people. You know, after a while I got the aeroplane, I got sick of driving. Just, you know, you're doing 110, 120,000 k's a year in a car. I was, wasn't enjoying that side of it. I thought, what a waste of my life every time I start this car up. It's time I'm never going to get back. I'm just sitting here on my own in this car going to a job, and it's not even exciting. So after a few years of that, um, you know, I decided to get an aeroplane. But, yeah, basically you're, 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 you're selling cattle off cattle stations, you know, to a heap of different markets, not just export, you know, southern meat workers, backgrounders, feedlots, interstation. So you need a big network of people that buy them and a big network of people that sell them. The part of the job that I've always found very daunting and why I've, I've thought that's not a job for me is that when you start, it's not like you get given a list of clients that are, are ready to go. Like you have to go and kind of knock on doors, you know, do the cold calls, make those connections yourself to be like, hi, you don't know me or maybe you do. But do you want to trust me with selling your animals? You know, that's got to be a hard conversation to have. It is. Um, it was a little easier because I'd lived up here in the area, but I'd hate to have come up from New South Wales or South Australia or somewhere. And I thought, think that's tough. You want to be have some pretty special skills. And once again, I think some people genetically lend themselves to it. And, you know, I noticed that with a few agents. It wouldn't matter what they did, they could strike up a deal and it was just the way that they were genetically designed where I wasn't, you know. I had to do the hard yards and beg and grovel a bit to get there. I I knew the practical side of it as far as drafting the cattle and getting them into the right specs. But, yeah, just making that deal was the hardest part. And it's it's one of them jobs, um, you know, you can't get, personal about it and uh, get used to get intimidated get used to the word no and get get just get used to losing a deal and I guess once you've you've learnt to 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 lose um yeah when you do get a win it's 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 confidence and you grow from that you mentioned I think it was in your first episode that like you don't spend much time looking back and ruminating on things picking it apart you're always looking forward is that sort of the same with with being an agent, like if someone would say no, do you would you drive away going, oh my god, I've just stuffed that up, I'm I'm an idiot, or are you just like, all right, they said no, cool, on to the next one. Yeah, that's exactly right. The latter is right. Um, you move on, you don't, yeah, dwell over it and reflect on it, and you you might try them again a week later with another deal. You know what I mean? But just don't quit. Just keep fronting up with 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 new deals, and um, till you get one over the line. Yeah, and then here's me thinking about something stupid I said two years ago and I'll sit there for 20 minutes today going, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that two years ago. (laughs) I want to be more like you, Wayne. I like the way you think. Tell me about, I guess, your first sale or your first couple of months in the job. Yeah, well, I was on a very good salary and expenses paid, you know, give me a brand new car. So everything was great and telephone and all that stuff I I wanted for nothing. Um, But, yeah, trying to get a deal done – sort of seemed impossible you know I knew, knew so many people but they were all in habits of dealing with their certain agents you know and at the end of the day you know people will deal with you if they're comfortable so it was a matter of just getting around that and I'd, I'd been going for you know quite a few months and and sold bugger all and um, yeah I think the bosses were starting to get on to me about it and then yeah just run into a, an exporter one day um who's since has been become a good friend of mine and um he uh he asked me if i had any connection with with uh Haystree cattle company i said yeah yeah i said i've managed there for 12 years and he said well they've got good cattle and um he said this this market's going to go through the roof keep that confidential and he said i want you to approach them and, and i want to buy all their cattle you know which was like about 20 something thousand head at the time that they were selling every year on an annual basis. So I did. I got in touch with the guy that, you know, marketed the cattle for Haysbury and, um, yeah, we did a deal for 22,000 head, which um, just blew me mind out. You know, I'd 
covered all my costs and my wages for probably two years just with that one deal. And that's all I was worried about. I just didn't want to disappoint anyone. So, um, yeah, I had great joy in, in putting that contract together and driving to the Darwin office and spearing it on their clipboard for everyone to see. That was a great, great time. That is one hell of a deal. That's a huge deal. And yeah, you mentioned before you're on a salary, but agents also work off commission as well. So like you said, you were, you'd covered the, the cost of them having you and then some. Yeah. And that's all I was concerned about, you know, like after that, the following year, I, I went on commission and been on commission ever since, you know, right through to the Ray White days where I've got my own franchise. But, um, yeah, when you're working for someone, um, you know, whether it's contract or a salary or whatever, you, you, I've always had an obligation that, you know, they're getting the better deal. Um, I never want them to think that they, that I've cut them short somewhere. It's also a huge achievement to have so early on in that career because that was in the first 12 months of being an agent. Like, yes, you might have had a slow start, but man, you came back with a swing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess it just grew from there. Um, you know, you, you learned a better way of doing things and way of approaching things. And, um, and more importantly, you got to get to know, uh, a lot of people, you know, people in the right place. And I think is, as far as I've ever got my life till today is, is not from what I know or my experiences from the people that I've met along the way that I've been able to fall back on that have helped me get me where I am today. One thing I've noticed about you from our time speaking is that, you know, you don't look back on things. You kind of, you're always looking forward. And you've mentioned a few times, you know, don't get emotionally attached to things. And, and even you just said in our last episode about your time at Flora is that, you know, you're there to, you're there to make money. Like it's a business. So, so whether it's, you know, a mustering style or a breed of cattle, you know, you say a lot of people do have these emotional attachments and, and you don't like you're just there to do the best job and, and treat it as a business. When it comes to being an agent though, how did you go with that? Because like you said, I think it is a very emotional thing for people because it's all about trust and interpersonal relationships. And you might be the best agent that gets the, you know, the best prices and, and blah, 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 blah. But if someone thinks you're, you know, not their cup of tea, then they just won't deal with you. Well, if they're the kind of person that I guess, you know, kind of has these attachments. And, and I know you have, there are certain people I know that, you know, their friends are agents. And so, you know, it's your friend. You're always just going to go through them because you've been best bungees for 20 years. Yeah. That's so, it's a good point, Steph. Yeah. You know, I just found out and it took me a few years to find out that, you know, people continue to do business with who they're comfortable with. And it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, elders or Ray White or, or Nutrient or whatever. But you do get that small percentage, you know, mum and dad and the granddad, they dealt with elders and we stick with elders no matter what the agent is. I've, I've seen a small percentage of that happen as well. But yeah, it's just a matter of establishing a relationship. And sometimes you can hit it off very well. Sometimes the relationship grows. And sometimes it's just never going to go anywhere. And you've got to be a realist with yourself with that and say, look, you know, this is just not going to work out. I've had a few goes at this business and I'm not getting it. So you move on. How did you go, I guess, trying to not change yourself, but, you know, if you're not the kind of person that gets these emotional attachments, but I guess on the other hand, being an agent or having that relationship, there is a lot of emotion in there. I guess, did you have to train yourself to kind of, look at things less like a business transaction and more like an, a personal transaction? Well, I always tried to, you know, get the best bang for the buck for the person that was paying my commission and that's the vendor, you know, the person selling the cattle. So as much as you're going to maintain a relationship with the buyer, which is often the exporters or the meatworks buyers, yeah, the the privileges always went to the vendor, the person paying my commission. So I was always trying to do the very best job for him. But if I don't get it right with the exporter or the buyer, well, then I mightn't get another order. So you you constantly compromise the whole time, you know, and, and then you're getting chastised by the vendor. You know, what's wrong with that one? Why didn't you take it? And and so you constantly, you know, explaining and, 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 and trying to help them understand the, the market because once they get loaded on a truck, 
down on the Sturt Plateau, you know, it could be 600, 500 Ks. What do you do with them if they get rejected, you know? So it just had to be on the ball with what went on the truck and sometimes there was confrontations. I guess even though it's a fairly different job from being a station manager, it's probably one of the best careers you could have stepped into coming off the station from that whole journey you went on from, you know, starting out as a ringer to head stockman, married man's position, overseer, assistant manager, junior manager, senior manager, because as we just spoke about in the last episode, each time you step up the ladder, it's not that you get removed from the the cattle side of things, but you do, I guess, a tiny bit and your focus gets put more and more on the people side of things. So by the time you were senior manager for Flora Valley, you know, people was your, that was your main business, even though you're in the cattle business, like you're kind of also really in the people business. And again, as a livestock agent, yes, your job is to buy and sell cattle, but 99% of it is dealing with people again. Even more so, you know, Flora Valley, they come and go. It might be one phone call a night to the neighbour or, or whatever, but, you know, as an agent, you know, you could be making a dozen phone calls, be up till 10, 11 o'clock at night, just, you know, after dark. And all the paperwork that comes with it. And then when the sun's up in the morning, you know, because some people, you've got to get them early in the morning because they're gone all day or you've got to get them late at night because they're not home through the day. And and you work all that strategy out and you get to know people and when they're going to be in near the phone, you know, and um, because they're not running around with mobiles like I am and Catherine. You know, they've got a landline and they've got to be near it to answer it. And um, and then hang around in phone range so when you know they're going to call you back, you just can't slip off out to Timber Creek and be out of range for two hours because you miss them, you miss the deal. So, yeah, there's a bit of strategy in not just the people themselves but the, the, the way you work the whole business. Have you had to develop a strategy to, I guess, have the, the art of the perfect phone call, I'm guessing, just, you know, that – Every now and then you probably get someone who just wants to have a yarn and you know those people when you're on the phone to them and like 40 minutes later you're like, ah, oh, yeah, so got it, you know, and there's just not a, an opportunity to kind of, you know, because you, you want to, yeah. you've got to maintain the relationship, be friends and, you know. That's right. But, yeah, <laughs> they can cost you two or three hours and, uh, you know, I'm not saying you learn how to shut them down <laughs> and get rid of them, but, you know, there was an instance there in, in the second year I was doing a lot of work in the Kimberley, you know, and a lot of um, Aboriginal community stuff and um, smaller properties over there and some bigger places. And and uh, when I looked at it, you know, because I was actually travelling still in the car, then I wasn't flying, you know, um, 80% of my work was a result of 20% of my income instead of the other way around. And uh, it took me a while to figure that out. So, yeah, there were some people for some reasons that you just had to let go. You know, it uh, wasn't financially worth it, not because they kept you on the phone for three hours, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you just had to make that decision. Yeah, there's only so many hours in a day you can't service everyone. So I'm not saying you pick and choose, but uh, it seems to find its own way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Were there any particular people that I suppose mentored you during this transition into the new career as a stock agent? Yeah, um, you know, there was agents up here at the time. There might have been a dozen agents. Uh, one of the guys that, you know, put me on, he was probably one of the longest serving agents up here. And uh, yeah, he was great to bounce things off. And if he's seen you go in the wrong direction, he'd give you a call and say, you know, I wouldn't be doing that. Which was good, you know, because you look back now and you think, shit, I'm glad I didn't do that. But you didn't know any better at the time. And then, yeah, I had a couple of old friends, um, you know, that were agents like 20 years older than me, you know, still going today. They, they were good to ring and bounce things off because sometimes you end up in, in a lot of money involved too, you know, you end up in situations and, um, you don't think you can solve the problem. And uh, too often it's just because uh, you, you're not giving thought to everything. You know, there's other ways around it. So by talking to those old fellas, you know, they always always come up with a, with a good answer to solve the problem. That happened a lot. <laughs> it was only a few years into being an agent that the live export ban happened. How did that impact you? Well, um, yeah, fairly seriously probably more mentally than financially straight up 
I mean, you know, it hurt a lot of people financially, certainly not me. I mean, it's still going on, you know, with their claims and everything, um, and it still hasn't been resolved. But, uh, yeah, just more mentally first, I thought, shit, you know, what am I going to do now? Do I have to go back to my trade or train horses or break in horses or something? And during that period, I I actually left uh, the firm I was with, Territory Rule, stepped aside and not knowing what I was going to do. And then an exporter that um, I'd been doing some work with and got along with really well, had a good relationship with, um, he was having some trouble in Indonesia with some breeder cattle that he sent over, you know, trying to teach the Indos how to handle them and uh, whatnot, which which I didn't have a clue what he was really talking about. But, yeah, he pretty much sent me over there just uh, for an assessment, really, a bit of a reconnaissance, take a few photos and report back to me, you know, do three or four days there, report back, and and then I end up, yeah, getting quite a bit of work over there on a consultancy basis, um, teaching them how to handle cattle and fencing and horse breaking and horse handling and um, uh, all sorts of things. So, yeah, it was a sort of another little chapter in my life, getting to know, you know, the the wild areas of Indonesia. Uh, the place I was going to used to be called Borneo, but they renamed it to Kalimantan, and uh, it was fairly remote, a bit like, um, you know, Arnhem Land is to Australia. And so it was, yeah, very exciting for a couple of years uh, going over there at various times. Was that your job full-time for a couple of years or were you? did you go back to being an agent in between? No, I went back to being an agent as well. Um, I actually, um, the firm I was with when it sort of departed, uh, one of the other guys actually gave me a job. He left as well not long after me and we sort of teamed up together for probably, you know, another three years or so. But at the same time, you know, didn't really have any direct bosses to answer to. I was fairly freelance with him because we got on so well. We're still great mates today. And, uh, yeah, we just shared the business pretty much. And then I kept doing that stuff in Indonesia and um, consultancy stuff. And then he actually become a, a, a full-on buyer for the same exporter. So it was all like one big family there. And we're all still doing agency work as well. So that went on for about three years. How does training people in Indonesia and working with cattle over there compared to being here in Australia? Is it, you know, obviously you've got language barriers and cultural differences, but you've spent, you know, you've built a career training up people and working and teaching them how to work with livestock. So was it quite transferable over there or did you have to kind of have a whole different approach? Well, frustrating to start with. I was very fortunate though, um, a girl by the name of Fiona Beard, she'd been doing a, a lot of work for this exporter and um, doing a lot of boats, you know, as a stockman on the boats, become very good at it. And she was a great interpreter. So pretty much every trip, not all of them, um, she was always with me. And she could explain to them and get the message across what I wanted to get across and then interpret what they were saying and talk back to me. So without her, I it wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, because a lot of them don't speak much English at all, some none. Um, and then there's the odd one that's very good. You know, the higher they are up the ladder, obviously the more education they've had, the better they speak English. But, yeah, it was very difficult and uh, would have been impossible without her. Well, where I went to, uh, it was actually in East Kalimantan, which is a very remote place. It was a place called the Sulong Rent, and... Uh, it was all palm oil trees. There's ten and a half thousand people work there. You know, there's not a there's very basic mechanisation in Indonesia for that reason. You know, there's three hundred odd million people, and if the mechanisation gets too big and heavy, well, then there's no work. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of little ants and Indians running around doing all sorts of jobs. So the primary income of the place was palm oil. They started putting cattle under the palm oil trees to you know be a bit more diverse and utilize the foliage under the plantation so they didn't have to prune it which was a great idea so they had all these cells set up it might have been three kilometers by one kilometer electric tape and there'd be 800 head in there for you know one night and a day sort of thing and they'd move them the next morning into another one and another one and by the end they had five or six thousand breeders all grey brahmins a whole lot of them you know all in calf from australia 
So it was pretty much helping them and then, you know, just trying to once again, you know, make it productive, make some money out of it, you know, and just not doing it my way or their way, working together with the ideas I've got from Australia. Um, For instance, you know, I designed three sets of yards there and I wasn't allowed to pull one tree out and I worked out all the trees were exactly nine metres apart in a triangle, you know, to the centre. So I come home and I, with my technical drawing skills from school and whatever, I drew up a graph with all these trees in it nine metres apart and I designed a set of yards so that we didn't have to cut the trees down. We weren't allowed to anyway or damage them you know, to successfully yard up and process cattle while all these trees were still in the plantation, um, which was a bit of a feat, but that was part of the reason I was employed, you know. So it became a very productive ranch and um, to the point where all the boys learnt to ride really well and they had gymkhanas and, and we talked the big boss into having a killer night like we do in Australia because they don't want to give any away, anything away. Them guys, they work for every cent, so we talked him into you know, donating a killer on a Saturday night and doing it like we do in Australia in the stock camps. And, uh, yeah, they all went and bought cowboy hats and flash saddles and it was great to see. I'm sure you've got a few funny tales to tell from your time there. Yeah, there's quite a few actually. Um, one that comes to mind the first time we yarded some cattle up because they, they had a lot of parasite problems. So we, we got them onto a new product because a lot of the products in Indonesia, the, the, the cattle are immune to it. You know, they're not working. And it's a lot of different worms over there being on the equator. So we yarded all these cattle up to treat them with this new ivermectin product. And, um, you know, we might have had 2,000 there to do and you can only fit like 400 in the yard, which was going to take with their facilities. It's going to take probably two hours, you know, rails, it's all timber and bamboo and they break and you've got to bolt them back up and whatever anyhow. And we're into these cattle for about an hour and um, everyone just disappeared. There's still cattle up the race and I'm looking around, they're just all walking off the job. And uh, I said to my interpreter, I said, where, where are they all going? And she said, oh, they, they've got to pray. They're, a lot of them are Muslims, and I think there was about two blokes left that weren't. They were still there with me. So we poked along, and they come back about an hour and a half later. And anyhow, when that head bloke got back, he was a nice guy too. I said, can you have a yarn to that Allah fella, that God fella you've been praying to, and see if we can maybe get through a full yard of cattle, and then you can go and pray? And they all thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> It never happened. Uh, yeah, they were just so regimental, so methodical. When they had to pray, which was about four times a day, they just left the show. So we just had to make sure that uh, when we were doing jobs like walking cattle, you know, out of their paddocks to go and get weaned or things like that, that sometimes took four or five hours through the hills with the horses, uh, that we didn't, yeah, have those people in the stock camp that uh, had to get away and pray. You know, we had to have those meetings before that happened. Actually, you know, that reminds me of a story last year, the year before, on the show we had Cosi Costello, who's a vet, and he um, looked after a ranch in Kazakhstan for a while, and he said one day he rode out there and there's just all these horses with saddles but no riders, and he was like, "Where's have they all fallen off? What's happened? But they were praying. Yeah, so. yeah. So, yeah, that was a bit of a learning curve that, you know, it's their culture and I respect it, but you just got to try and meet in the middle somewhere. Very resourceful people, um, you know, it, it, it probably taught me those couple of years ago on there, um, you know, success is making the best of what you got and those people were very good at it, you know, they're so resourceful. All right, if it's okay, I want to switch the conversation now to the last topic that I'm going to humbug you on and then I'll I'll let you have your life back, and that is horses. So I think the name, I think it's pretty fair to say the name Wayne and Rachel Bean, or the names, uh, are very synonymous with horses or good horses, good horsemanship, skills, good scores, you know, all those fun things. So you have told me at some point, I think you're preparing for these episodes, that you basically put horses on the back burner for many years as and sacrificed doing, you know, chasing that goal so that you could 
you know, get ahead in your career and, and have your family. So when did you start to be able to get back into horses? Oh, well, pretty much when we got to Mullaloo, you know, because you're a manager, you, you sort of, you drive in your own time and you haven't got a direct boss there above you living next door to you. So yeah, I started to get back into horses then. When we moved there, we didn't own any. So we, we bought a couple of young ones and got them going, broke them in and bought a couple of older going ones, you know, to get a bit of a start and then started going to all the local camp drafts. It might have been Timber Creek and Pussycat, Cunanara, Catherine. Yeah, starting to live the dream on that side of things. And I wasn't having a lot of luck. I wasn't winning anything. And and then I um, I actually I got a, a, a new head stockman. I think it might have been 95. It was actually Danny Hayes' brother of all, younger brother Michael and Beck. And they uh, they come from a very good camp drafting family, obviously, like uh, like Danny, and uh, been doing it all their life. And anyhow, I was about to give up camp drafting. I just thought it was a luck sport because you know I finally got to have a go at it for a couple of years, being a manager. Yeah, wasn't doing any good at it, and I just sort of I was about to give it up and and just stick to fishing, sort of thing. That's true story. And uh, when Michael and Beck come along and. And uh, I, I see Michael, you know, win five open drafts in a row on a pretty ordinary horse that, you know, couldn't run out of sight in a dark night. And uh, he'll tell you that. I thought, well, there's more into this job. So, yeah. And then yeah, learned a lot from Michael and Beck watching them. You know, she was a governess. He was the 2IC. And then they moved down to Flora with us as well when we went down there and that's probably what got me back into horses. I know. can't believe you almost gave it up. I did. I did. I was that filthy with myself and frustrated and I didn't seem to be getting any help from anywhere and probably wasn't looking hard enough. But yeah, I almost quit. Well, that's the other thing that I, I wonder is, you know, how do you develop as a horseman when you live so remote and you don't have access to going to clinics and schools and, and you know, we don't, you know, YouTube wasn't a thing back then. You know, how how did you get better? Did you have to ask like Michael Hayes to, you know, do you, do you kind of just talk things out or be like, hey, can you come watch me here and see if you can pick up what I'm doing wrong? Like, do you just have to, yeah, yeah, probably learnt more watching him and, um, you know, like I was a handy enough horse and cattleman, but I wasn't familiar with competition. And the mental side of it is probably what I learned a lot off Michael about. It's more so the mental side of things. And uh, picking cattle, you know, specifically for your job description, which is camp drafting, you know, it's not just like a mob of cattle out in the paddock, you're drafting up for sale, like get inside cattle's head and understand, you know, the right ones to pick. That side of the job is what I got from him. Yeah, so tell me more about this mental side because I don't think I've heard anyone in saying that. Don't talk to a lot of camp drafters. Don't, I know there's a few camp drafting podcasts out there just straight <laughs> over my head, you know? Yeah. It's not a spectator sport, like I it's not. But no. yeah, tell me about this mental side. Well, you know, we've got the Australian Open on at the moment and just to hear Djokovic talk, you know, one interview there, they were interviewing him and they said, um, who, who have you got to beat to get to the top? And he said, I just got to beat this bloke in the back of my head. And, and, you know, I, I think the mental side of it is just about getting to know yourself. When you go really well, you got to look at yourself and say, well, what made that happen? What, why wasn't it different to last weekend when I went like a bag of shit? So it's, it's just more about, yeah, becoming a better competitor at what you're doing. You know, you might have the cattle skills, you might have the horses, you know, you might have the best horses on the truck. But uh, if you're not a good competitor, it's usually because the, things aren't right at home or there's something mentally going on in the back of your head, you know, puts you off your game. And it doesn't matter whether you're a tennis player, a cricket player, we've all seen it. You know, people right at the top and then all of a sudden they're not going very well. So, yeah, it's about, and I I got a lot off uh, Michael about that side of the job, you know. Interesting. I guess like, so yeah, you can't, it sounds like there's not many sports people that can compartmentalise their lives you know, and say, you know, if you're having trouble at home, that you can just put that aside and then go out on the pitch or in the arena or whatever and, and go for it. Like it, it really does kind of yeah. transpire through every, every aspect of your life. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, like, um, 
it's it's a situation. You know, anyone can, you know, play cricket on Boxing Day at their mother's place and with all their mates and friends and make a hundred. But, you know, try and go to the Melbourne Cricket Ground and do it in front of 80,000 people, you know, with all the stage fright and all that sort of thing. That's the side of it you've got to get used to is, is, is getting out there and doing it in front of people that you respect and they're looking down at you and you think, oh, they're judging me this way, they're judging me that way. It's, it's about having not a care factor and just get in and do your job. Do you ever feel that these days? Do you ever get nervous or a bit, you know? No, there was a long time there I did, but, you know, it was mainly when I went away, like in the Territory or the Kimberley, I didn't. But when I went away and you hear about all these, you know, they're the, the Djokovic and the Federers of the camp draft world sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you know, they're riding in after you or before you. And, yeah, it's dawning. You know, these people you looked up to all your life. But after going down there a few years, um, yeah, there's just, you know, just another person. So funny you say that because having, you know, being in a camp draft, if I see like Wayne Bean riding past, I'm like, oh my God, there's Wayne Bean. Like, that's the- so just so you know, you are that Djokovic to other people. Yeah, you know, um, it's probably true. Everyone's at a certain stage, but yeah, when I go down south, I, I look up to them guys and I've, I've beat them a few times too, you know, um, but I'm, I'm not as consistent as they are. They're, they're probably in a, a group of people where they just have to be absolutely focused because there's so many good riders down there with good horses, you know. If we've got 20 people up here that could win any weekend, you know, like the big one, the open draft, which is, you know, there's probably 20 people up here that can win it any weekend. There's 200 down there. With this mindset you have of not looking back, not ruminating, dwelling on things, you know, kind of letting it go, are you like that? if you have a bad run or when you were, I guess, coming up in, in drafting, like would you would you be like, oh, my God, I buggered that run and then like re-do the ride again in your head or are you just like, all right, that one, whatever, crack it off, on to the next? Well, yeah, the main one is is the cattle. You know, I think if there's any luck in the sport, it's, it's what you presented, you know, whether it's eight head or nine or ten head in the yard. So the only time I get dirty with myself if I get the wrong one, you know, because if I can take the luck out of it by getting the best one in the yard, and they could be all horrible, but if I can get the best of the worst, and I know I did, well, I don't care what happens, you know. But if I've missed something, someone else has seen, you know, a cow that's been there for five or six, seven runs, and I let it, and they've come out and run a 90 after I got cracked off, uh, that that's when I really start dwelling. Why, 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 why? That's when I look back hard, and I look back hard a lot. But otherwise, I just don't analyse every run. You know, sometimes I've done a ninety, and I thought I stuffed that up. It should have been a ninety-three. I didn't make the best of it. You know. Yeah. So you can tell I'm not a camp drafter because I always wonder. I'm like, how did they get a twenty-one instead of a twenty? Like, how do you decide when to give someone that extra point or not? And how do you do this without replays? It's kind of you know I love it. The Calgary Stampede they'll replay someone's like rough stock ride and then they'll pause it, they'll draw on the screen, explain exactly how they got that score. Cam draft, it's so fast. There that you're yeah. not in the camp for you know seconds. Like, and and it's not very objective too, the scoring side of it, you know. Um it's uh you know, it's very difficult to get a, a lot of uh, good consistent judges, but you know, you know, there's a, a lot of confrontations at times over scoring to the point where I I just say, well, that's that's their job, and whatever it is, it is. You know, if I think it was a ninety when they gave me an eighty-five, or it, it is what it is. You know. So I guess I'm learning something here at the moment. Um, you know, full disclosure, I've competed in one camp draft ever, not a drafter, but I guess I always thought it was about you know, yeah, you get your, your score in the in the camp, you come out, you do your course, but I guess. Picking the beast is is half the battle, or more than half. It's the battle. all the battle. Yeah, okay. It's, all, it's the only luck factor in the sport. You know, the, the rest of it. You know, you got to have your horse trained, and you got to be on your job mentally. You know, yeah. you don't want um, things bad at home, and you're riding into the camp in the final of the Gold Cup. You know, uh, that sort of thing. And and that's part of being a good competitor. You know, if there is things that are going wrong at home, you can put them in the back burner for a minute while you have your run. A lot of people can't do that. You know, they're real confidence riders, 
and uh, if something's wrong, they just can't operate, you know. You know, or they'll go to a new place and get a bit of stage fright, you know, because they're at a new place, new people, different cattle. So there's a lot in being a competitor, but the only luck in it is the mob of cattle you ride in on, you know. And for anyone listening, I guess, that hasn't watched camp drafting before, so you're kind of going into a, a small space, not that small, but, you know, with, is it 10 head that's in there usually? Yeah, there's usually anywhere from six to eight, but it can be up to 10 or 11 okay. head. And you've got to pick an animal to then take out around sort of like a little course or not, you know, ride them around a certain pattern. Um, but there is a class where is it, I don't know if you call it like the beginners or the something encouragement, encouragement where there's only, when you go in there, there's only one in there. So that that's, way. Yeah. So that's. I guess you could really get kind of screwed over in that way, like luck of the draw of what you've got in there. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, they want – it's an encouragement draft or a beginner's draft, they call it sometimes. They want people to have a go, have a yeah. run outside. I yeah, mean, exactly. most of the points are outside, so they just figure, you know, we're not going to crack you off. Eventually you've got to come out. There's only one beast there. Yeah. And if it's that unruly, we'll let it out and get you another one anyway, which is what I do when I judge. Um, yeah. If I think it's unruly, I just let it out and get them another one. And everyone has a go. They get a feel for the sport. You know, they're not hurting someone's cattle, some person that's donated the cattle. Yeah. They're not smacking back into them, upset, and you've got one animal. What can you do? Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good point. It makes me feel a lot better about my encouragement run. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you can know, only work with what you've got, and at least you can take out the factor if you pick the wrong animal because yeah. you didn't pick the animal at all. But, you know, when you go down south on the east coast, whether it's New South Wales or Queensland, Victoria encouragement, you've got to ride into a mob of cattle like the rest of the people, the rest of the competitors. Oh, really? It's pretty much only in the territory of the Kimberley that oh. they'll put one in the yard. Mm. Wow. There you go. All right. I'm not going down south anytime soon. And I guess I also want to know about you. Do you compete? Speaking of, you know, the Federers and the Djokovic's of the sport, are you, when you go out there, are you trying to compete against them or do you compete against yourself? Like what, you know, if you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I guess you can let that get to you. And uh, it's, you know, it's very evident in tennis, as you just mentioned, Federer and I think. That's when we see them guys play their worst is when they're trying to beat, they're mentally trying to beat them rather than just trying to beat the ball. And camp drafting is the same, you know. I see a lot of people get hung up on someone who's got two more points than them or something. At the end of the day, we can't control who puts the cattle in the yard. It's our job to find the best one. And the war is between you and that cow. It's, and whatever score you get, you get. And I think. The more I use that approach, uh, the better I am for it, you know. Um, it helps me better mentally, thinking that way. Focus on the cow rather than the bloke that's just run a big 92 before you. Yeah, I always wonder about that because I try and think of things that, you know, let's say you go to five drafts and, I don't know, Danny Hayes kicks your ass at every one of them just trying to sweeten Danny up because he's got to come record often some more. He, often he does. <laughs> but I think, you know, I don't know if it's about you going to the sixth draft and beating him or the fact that you got a better cutout score or just, you know, got, you know, picked better beasts or whatever for over those six drafts against yourself versus what you're doing compared to anyone else. Like as long as you're getting better against your previous run, it's like, it's like running a race. Like, does it matter where you come in the race? But if you came faster than you did the last time you went running, like then, I don't know. Like, what more can you really ask for? I mean, because there are so many. I think in this sport, there's so many factors. Like, whose cattle are they? What cattle? Who's working the gates? Who's you know what's going on? Is yeah. There's so much else going on. You can only really compete against yourself. That's right, and you know, and a lot of those people that work the gates, they can cause problems at times, but they are volunteers, so. You, you can't go yelling at them if they get something a bit wrong or if the judge scores you, you know, the wrong way or whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, you've just you got to step in there and it's between you and the cow, you know, and, and leave all that political stuff to the side, the judging and all the other abnormalities that can happen, which they do. Um, and, yeah, it's just between you and the cow and make your assessment after you're running and then you might reflect on it and goes in your subconscious and move on. 
What is it about camp drafting that you love so much and that you, you know, you pour a lot of time, money and effort and energy into it? What is it? It's, uh, it's just a great hobby. It really is. You know, everyone has a hobby, um, whether it's knitting or sewing or fishing or golf. It's just a great hobby and I, I happen to like cattle and I like horses and it's the one hobby that uh, that I can go and enjoy, you know. It's, uh, and I, I don't go to camp drafts to catch up with me friends or sit around drinking beer all night, even though we've had some fun times, don't get me wrong, and drive all those kilometres. I, I, I just, um, yeah, I just love chasing cattle. I really do. And try and chase them with a bit of science. You know, rather yeah. than just out on the flat like we used to on the stations. Um, yeah, a little bit of precision about it. And, um, yeah, it's a great feeling when it comes off. It's a huge amount of, you know, dopamine oozing out of your body and you get addicted to that. You know, when you have a big run like a 92 or a 93, yeah, it's just, it's just a great feeling that you've trained a horse and he's done more than you've expected. And, um, you know, winning's the last thing I sort of worry about. It's, it's, it's all about that horse doing his job. Is it supposed to be representative of working cattle out, you know, on the station or on a farm or something? Cause I often wonder, I get it. Like, you know, you've got your cutting part, you know, working them out, which is, you know, you, lots of people can draft cattle on horses, like just in the yards or whatever. And then. You're taking them out around this course. I always wonder, like, with the gate at the end, you know, the, the gate, which is these two pegs that you kind of put them through. Like, but if you were out on the flat somewhere and you were trying to bring one back, you know, that had escaped at yard up and you're trying to put it back in the yards, those gates would have fences on either side. Because the amount of times, oh, it breaks my heart. You see someone, they're coming right up to the gate and at the last minute that beast just, just around the other side. Whereas if you were out at a set of yards, you'd have fences there. It wouldn't be able to do that. So you probably would have got it home. You know, is it supposed to be representative well, or like just a, I guess, you know, kind of like bull riding isn't really, Well, you know? it, it got started and I was fortunate to be at an age when I got married and got to Currawill, it was still going and that's where it started from, from cutting out on the flat. Mm. You know, the horses even back then in 1988, um, when I moved to Carrawilla, like the, there was probably three horses, they had camp, what we called their camp horses, that's all they did was cut the sale cattle out. That's all they did, you know. They never went mustering. They never did anything. That's all they did. And they earned their right to do that. Like it took them four or five years to train, you know. They'd start by turning back out the front and holding cattle and then, you know, then they'd work on the face. And the face is a bit like gates we got now, you know, like they had horses there so that not all the cattle come out, only the one that you cut out come out. So they start off working on the face. And let me tell you, you know, there's two or three horses there that, that could win any draft in Australia at the highest level um, that have been doing it for, you know, four or five years. And it's the same as camp drafting. You know, they've got to cut it out of the herd. But sometimes the face could be 100 metres wide. It's trying to get back to its buddies and there's no fence, there's no gates. So that's what you call the face, and then you've got to stop really hard at speed, and then it's trying to beat you back to the mob another 100 metres, which is a long way at flat gallop. So that, And then you had to drive it forward at the same time. So if it was heading over this way, you'd have to get up and shoulder it back this way or that way to get it into the mob that you were cutting into, the sail cap. So that's where the sport evolved from. Yeah, there was no fences, there was no gate. And, and they were proper proper camp horses, oh. where the horses today, even mine, they're manufactured, if you know what I mean. Yeah. They've never cut out in the flat in their life. Yeah, but I mean- They've never done a hard day's work in their life. Yeah, but if one of your horses like hurt its hoof, that it's like tens of tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, like. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and those horses were precious to them, like, yeah. you know- if you didn't have them on a bit of good feed and you were the horse tailor, that fellow who owned him, he'd come and give you a serve, you know, the boss man, and say, get those horses over there, another half a kilometre, some decent grass, we've got to cut out on them tomorrow. Yeah. You know, they, they guard them and they shot them properly. They were proper looked after. They were the queen of the herd. Yeah. Yeah, the camp horses. Well, that context, um, yeah, makes a lot more sense as to how camp drafting has evolved. I've been trying to pitch this idea for a few years and I'm wondering if I can get your support, Wayne, uh, for this. It's, I don't know what we call it, but 
All right, you come out of the camp as you would normally into the arena, except while you're trying to put your animal around the course, um, you're wearing a, a holster with a two-way. There's at least two motorbikes in there kind of chewing up dirt, a helicopter from above, and somebody's just hurling abuse at you over the two-way. I think it's much more representative of today. <laughs> that you've so got to be able, You yeah. know, like you've got to have dust in your eyes. You've got to be dodgy. Oh, maybe have some like some wattle or an ant's nest or a sinkhole or something, you yeah. know, for up here. Make it, you know, um, match it to the region, you know, the topography. And that, yeah, you've got to be able to get that animal around while – or even honestly, if it was just somebody yelling at you over a two-way, like you've got to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the modern way of doing it. <laughs> um, I used to like the old way. You know, it was it was it was good fun. You know, even if you weren't cutting out just to watch those horses. You know, some of the the big moves they'd put in um, at speed. You know, and not on desirable ground. You know, often it could be uneven ground or a clay pan. They try and pick good ground because they really loved their horses. They didn't want to hurt them. Um, but it was just so great to watch. And there was no yelling and screaming. There was no noise. If there was any noise, you know, you get a whip down the back or get sacked, you know, because you had to keep the cattle quiet so they stayed mothered up. So there's no yelling and screaming. It was all quite, quite, quite. Maybe we need to get one of those events going again. Um, I'm trying to think of what they call it when it's like just for demonstration. Um, what do you call it when it's like, you know, they do it with um, Bronco branding sometimes. Oh, like yeah. It's, you know, yeah, just, yeah. you know, like non-competitive just for, you know. Yeah, yeah, just straight demonstration. Yeah, yeah. we should get that no, going. No, it's good to watch when you – well, anything's good to watch when it's done at a high level, you know, no matter how old-fashioned it is. Yeah, I think that would be – that's the go. I don't know. We'll, we'll find a way. And it's interesting what you say about how your horses have never done a, a hard day's work in their life because I often think about that with – the cutting horses in America, you know, they're like two-year-old worth however many millions of dollars. I'm like, yeah, but could it go out and actually do anything? Like it probably could, but they're so valuable now that, ooh, just the That's idea exactly of it makes right. me anxious. Like, Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I've rode a lot of those cutting horses, horses that have done very well and, um, you know, a lot of them you wouldn't take mustering. They trip over. They can't even canter in a straight line. And these are horses that have, you know, won a lot of money at the futurity and, had a lot of man hours put into them, but they weren't a, a nice horse to ride first, you know. Um, with our horses, we try and make them or manufacture them to be a nice horse to ride first, you know. It's it's not about their job description until they become a nice horse to ride, and then we head down the path of challenges or camp drafting. Tell me about some of the memorable horses of your time so far, the horses that, you know, have stood out. I'm, I'm guessing you've got some pretty great mates. You've probably had a few bust-ups with others, you know. As you said, it, it's all about personality and the dynamic there. Yeah, well, going back to the beginning, um, yeah, once I sort of got back into drafting, I, I went and upgraded some horses and, you know, as they say, trying to keep up with the Joneses because it was, it was more about winning than, 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 you know, understanding horses back then. I just want to get into the sport and have a go. So, um, yeah, bought a really nice mare, a five-year-old mare called Keeping Busy. She was the one that probably set, sent the benchmark for the rest of my life. You know, it was did back in 97, I think it was. Sorry. Did she keep you busy? That was my dad's joke. I've got to throw <laughs> that one in. Uh, she kept me mind busy, but no, she was just a beautiful animal. She's probably a little bit small for me. She had little pony feet and she ended up breaking down, you know, at about 12 year old, which was unfortunate, but I had a good six years out of her and, and won some fairly memorable things, um, including the Territory Cup, which was big back in the day and the, the cutout there was as well, which, you know, we're talking 25 years ago, paid $1,000 to win a cutout, you know, we're only just getting that today to win one. So, yeah, no, a lot of memories with her, and then, yeah, she set the benchmark for everything I wanted to ride. I wanted them to go like her. And so what you were just saying about, you know, these days you, you try and get a horse that's good to, you, you're trying to manufacture or build them to be a horse that's good to ride first and then, go down the competition route, that's what you look for in, in all your horses. Is that, I think we were talking off air about the sport of extreme cowboying in America and, you know, those horses have got to be able to do all these things and be quite handy yeah. and good, well-rounded horses, uh, which is why I think that's like an incredible sport to follow. Um, but is, is that that's kind of making me think there's some synergies there with what you're looking for on a horse, that they've got to be sort of well-rounded and, 
and, you know, be a horse rather than like a little spinny machine thing. Yeah. Well, you know, they've got to have a job description like the one you mentioned in America, and I've watched that, that they've got to do a lot of things, you know. So they obviously train for that. Um, just like we just train for challenges or train for camp draft. And, you know, in the beginning, you know, I used to just um, – bang them into it, you know, by going mustering because we had a lot of opportunity to go mustering and tailing. So everything was done on the job. And um, what I found is even though, you know, not all horses can be A grade, they're like people, they're A grade, B grade, C grade, you know, the ones that weren't going to make it really had no foundation and they really weren't worth nothing. They were just a plant horse. Um, where today, you know, any of the horses that we breed, um, to train on, um, they must go to school first, meaning that they've got to have a foundation. So we just don't get straight into training them for camp drafting. You know, they've got to have a nice stop and walk, trot, canter on a loose rein and um, turn around nice and roll back nice and be quiet to get around and just do everything nice, you know, and, and, and then, you know, and that takes anywhere from 60 to... 70, sometimes 100 rides, you know, it could be over one year, it could be over two or three years, depending on the nature of the horse, whether he's hot-blooded or cold-blooded. So um, once they've had that education, well, then we start heading them down the road of their job description, yeah. So is that you do all this, those 70 to 100 rides, that's all dry work, and then would you go out tailing cattle or doing a bit of mustering, or is it that these horses end up being so valuable that it's better to kind of just you know, put them in that, um, just that training environment, like in no, the I, I, you know, I, I look after them to the sense I'm, I'm not going to ride them through thick scrub and, and get them speared by a bit of dead wood or timber or something like that or slip over on a bit of limestone or fall down a big black soil crack or hard ground where they could, you know, hurt their bones and that sort of thing, ligaments. Um, I look after them that way, but, um, man, they work, you know, like, yeah, I'll, canter them up the paddock and uh, do different things down the highway, chase buffalo on them, you know, in those first hundred rides, they get exposed to everything, work a mechanical cow. You know, they're quite handy horses, but it doesn't mean they're ready to camp draft or they're going to be A graders, so we sell them on. And, you know, might suit someone at entry level coming into the sport of camp drafting or... um two-handed karting or pony club or polo cross there's a heap of different horse events that they're quite suitable for only because they've got a good foundation so um they've got some purpose in life i know i keep coming back to this thing about you you not getting emotional with things and not looking back are you like that with your horses like you know don't don't get attached no i don't i like i said i have a benchmark and um yeah the horses don't hit that benchmark you know, sometimes it takes me till they're seven-year-old before I know that they're not going to make that benchmark. And so we sell them, you know, and we can't keep them all. You know, if you're breeding three or four a year, or um, that ends up being a lot of horses by the time they're at competition age of five-year-old. And uh, then you've got the ones that you're riding, you know. We've probably got four on the truck that'll probably stay on there, I'd like to say, forever. But, yeah, they, they're, they're way above the benchmark and, um, yeah, we love riding them and they're very competitive. And then we've probably got three or four at home from two to four-year-old that just might make a spot on the truck too. I don't know. It's just you don't know. Is there anyone that's managed to kind of squirrel their way into your heart and they've got a home forever or, you know, even if they became permanently lame tomorrow, you're like, no, that <laughs> horse is going to. Live out their glory days in my paddock. No, only only if, if Rachel wants that. I mean, um, you know, she's great support to me. She mightn't be as highly competitive as I am in in her own right, but, uh, yeah, if she gets specially attached to a particular horse, well, then I have no qualms of whatever makes her happy in that department. She, it's hers. Yeah. Is there anything you are particularly attached to? You know, not it's not horses, it's not cattle, it's not a style of doing things. I guess is it just Rachel and the boys? Yeah, I um <clears throat> think of, think about how you're going to answer that one. <laughs> it's just how I've been, you know. Like um, you know, uh, yeah, I've always uh, everything sort of had to pay for itself, pretty much as the way I've grown up, and you know, over the years, um, I've 
I've done it with the horses, you know, to a point where they pay for themselves, you know, not just from winnings, but um, selling progeny on and, um, you know, obviously doing horsemanship schools as well. You know, it's all part of the deal, being involved in horses. And even my fishing now, you know, like uh, I, I love fishing. I probably only go for it for times a year, but I plan it all out. And, you know, the trip might cost me $2,000 in fuel and ice and bait or whatever, but we bring back $3,000 worth of beautiful fillets that you couldn't buy in Darwin, you know what I mean? So it's just the way I approach everything. Yeah, it's not that I, I don't get attached. It's, it's just it's got to have a purpose. Yeah, I think we could all take a leaf out of your book and especially me looking at this puppy that has destroyed our cars, our yard, everything, and I just can't get rid of him. <laughs> but I really want to. Let's <laughs> just let you make the decision, Wayne. Look, we got two beautiful corgi dogs at home and <clears throat> I love them to death and they don't make us any money and i got to say I am emotionally attached to them. Okay, there they we go. They sit up on my lap at <laughs> night and they're just good little mate. Yeah. yeah. Okay, there we go. I'm starting to get so a bit worried there. <laughs> yeah. What is for you the biggest achievement when it comes to horses? I guess um, coming up with a method and uh, a philosophy that you believe in, and it's taken a lot of years, you know, because horses are like people. There's so many different attitudes and different levels of energy and you know, all shapes and sizes, just like people. And, yeah, being able to, you know, come up with an answer when the problem seems insolvable sometimes is probably the greatest thing I've achieved in that remarks where I've got a good method. Um, I teach that method at the schools I do as well. I believe in it. And it's probably the greatest thing I've got out of it. And what is, I guess, what's left for you to achieve with horses now? Oh, it's just personal things as a competitor. Like we were talking before, I just want to become a better competitor. Like I'm, I'm happy with the way my horses go and, um, you know, the way I select cattle now. It's just about being a better competitor and, and, you know, some personal goals there. Like I'd love to have a horse and, you know, get, which I've got a couple coming on to go to the Cloncurry Challenge. It's always been in the back of my mind. Uh, to win one, and uh, one of the big three drafts down south, whether it's a Gold Cup or the Grandfather Clock or the Condamine Bell, they're the things that keep getting me out of bed every morning to ride a horse, is, is to find one that's going to be good enough to win something like that one day. For a minute, when you said down south, I just assume you meant Victoria, but that's what's that, Warwick, Chinchilla, Condamine, that's not down south, Wayne. That's kind of like the middle, but I get what you mean, down south. Well, it's south of us in Catherine. If that's south, then what is Victoria? That's Camp Draft Talk down south. Yeah. It's, it's probably more east, but it's down south. I'm just yeah. proud that I knew that the grandfather <laughs> clock was the chinchilla draft. There you go. Oh, before I let you go, so just coming back to this mental side of things quickly, and, you, and coming back to the tennis analogy, I know in many sports you know the mental side of the game is a huge thing like um there's sports psychologists like the top football players tennis athletes everyone they have like their own psychologists just for sport when i uh, got to hang around some pro rodeo people in the states like they were all into you know obviously they have to do all their physical training but there was a lot of like mental training reading books listening to podcasts all that sort of thing is there anything like that that you do or that, you, that you've kind of looked into for camp drafting? Like I know you said in the mental side, it's kind of, you know, picking your beast and, and, but also, and you know, not letting things from home come through. But what else do you do to kind of mentally prepare? Have you gone outside? Kind of like how Janet gave you that book about how to become a better um, people person. How do you become a better competitor? Well, um, similar to what you've been talking about, you know, I this, whenever I find something that, interests me like a podcast uh, a book or even you know just any athlete or it doesn't got to be a camp drafter um i think everyone's got words of uh wisdom you know especially older people you know like um that have been there done that they know what you're going through and i don't mean older people like me in my 50s i'm talking people in their 70s and 80s you know people who genuinely know what they're talking about yeah I try and talk to them a lot 
you know, and there's a few of them in our industry, which makes it relevant. And, you know, whenever I'm struggling with something um, and I can't find an answer to, I think just by phoning those people up, having a chat to them, I get more out of that than picking up the best-selling book that, you know, how to control your mind and all that sort of thing. Yeah, having those people to to ring up and talk to. And there's only a few of them, like a couple of them, but, and, you know, they've got a fair bit of vintage on them. Yeah, I think there's some things that you, you know, there's a lot we can learn from books or schools or videos, but there's some things that you just can't learn until you've done the time. Like you, you have to wait. You know, same with your horse. You can go to 10 horse schools, but sometimes you just need to put that many kilometers or that many wet saddle pads on them that, yeah. You just, it's just a time thing. Exactly right, you know, and, um, you know, a lot of people, they come to these schools and they think you've got a magic wand, you know, they're going to learn in one day or two days. And, um, I always tell them, you know, if you, if you want to learn it bad enough, you won't need me to teach it to you. You just got to want it bad enough, you know, and you look into the life history of any great footballer or tennis player or camp drafter you know the, the first thing they had was just a huge amount of passion for what they did i think that's if you've got that desire it's so great you, you'll figure it out well thank you so much for your time over these three episodes it's been hell of a ride i've learned so much feeling very inspired and as i did with the the first two episodes i'm going to ask you the same question Looking back on, I suppose, this chapter of your life that we've discussed today, but also the whole shemang, what what are the lessons that stand out to you? Well, I had my goals and I've achieved them. And yeah, I think the biggest lesson in that is 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 don't quit and enjoy the journey. You know, it's a it's a big journey. You know, I've I've never wanted a lot in life. Um, you know, I never wanted to own a big cattle station or have a big empire or like a Donald Trump or a Sydney Kidman or anything like that. I had pretty simple goals and, and stick to them. You know, it's the greatest lesson. Stick to those goals and never stop rewriting them. Whether they're personal, career, family, it's what gets you going every day. It keeps you mentally strong and gets you out of bed. 